0: Und
1: von To the glass on glazen und nimmt dus und geht mit mir aten
2: Welcome to the Minyan. We are your Talmudic tankies. I am Talia and we are discussing ecofascism and eugenics from a Jewish perspective. Um, Prez almost became the joker because our recording bot died, but we saved everything, thank God. We are joined today with Lydia from the Center for Communist Studies. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Lydia.
3: Hi, I'm a senior in college studying civil environmental engineering with a minor in religion. And today I will be talking about the development of Jewish environmental ethics. Do you want
2: to introduce
1: us? I'm
2: Prez. See, Prez has already become the joker. There's a
1: nice long gap now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Prez. I'm. Still the Joker, (laughs) I just almost became extra Jokerified.
2: You wouldn't understand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just gonna talk the way I usually talk, having no idea
0: what I'm doing. And I am Zev, and I have not become the Joker yet.
2: Thank God. (laughs) There's like two Jokers on this podcast Uh, at this point. (laughs) (laughs)
0: There's only room for one Joker in the Minion. (laughs)
2: Prez is Joaquin Phoenix. I feel more like Mark Hamill.
0: Yeah, so
1: we're going all the way back to the origins of ecofascism with what else but the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas. So this is going to be a, a nice and uplifting beginning of this episode. Of course. <laughs> of course. So this didn't really just start by Columbus showing up and then genociding. A couple entire islands first we had another fun not genocide but another fun depopulation of another continent where europe lost a third of its population to the bubonic plague which as some of us might know led to the kind of onset of capitalism in some ways by having almost no workers So all of the the mechanisms of the landowners and the, the budding financiers of that time needed to have some new ways of continuing capital accumulation and capital growth. Through that lens, we kind of started to see Venice pop up as a big merchant republic. And that's kind of towards where we see Marx, at the end of his life, kind of question about whether or not Venice was the first capitalist state, because they... Had their entire empire and wealth built on essentially trade networks. They colonized most of the Eastern Mediterranean, essentially just to build more trade networks and get more resource, more resources to trade. And their main competitor, main colonial and imperial competitor, uh, Genoa, which is where we'll uh, come back to with Columbus, was a uh, similarly wealthy trading empire where they got all of their land and trade from uh, essentially mercantile Mediterranean networks. But it took a took a pretty significant amount of time for Europe to kind of realize that Venice was the way to go, and what Venice actually needed was to constantly expand because most of the most of Italy, as it is today, is a clusterfuck of political political systems so they need to kind of continuously accumulate capital and resources to drive market growth and this is kind of the basics of marxist analysis that we have today you need a constant cycle of market growth to drive profit and uh To do that, you need more and more resources until we uh, build contradictions and a new crisis which pushes capital accumulation in another direction that it wasn't already, and then we have resource kind of grabbing in that other way. As this kind of shift away from feudalism and farm working happened throughout Europe, they wanted stuff to trade and essentially didn't have anything because what what resources does europe really have the iberian peninsula has a couple metals and most of the european continent has some wood and some other things and we kind of have that issue when europe starts trading with africa or china or india where they essentially show up to all of these countries and they say we have some cloth and we have some early muskets and no one wants any of that shit because it's kind of crap compared to all of the porcelain and nice silks and all of the actual quality goods that they have. So to to kind of grow out the this new political and economic system, we need to just start connecting with the rest of the world. Not quite yet to genocide the entire planet so we have people like marco polo just kind of trying to go everywhere in the early 1500s right before we start to trek out to the americas to see if we could get around to india we actually make quote-unquote first contact with japan we make kind of first contact with korea we make a lot of contact with the east asian countries in the pacific by sea, Previously, the Silk Road was the, the main way to get goods, and that was very expensive, so we were, we were beginning to try and get it ourselves. Then we have probably much more successful traders like Ibn Battuta going almost everywhere around the world but Europe because we didn't have anything. And around that same time, we have someone named Mansa Musa. This isn't really quite relevant, but I, I think it's still kind of funny. He was might have been the richest man in history because when he went to Mecca and he went to chill out in Egypt afterwards, he had so much gold that he crashed gold prices for about 15, 20 years.
2: How did he get all that money? <laughs> or how did he get all that gold?
1: He was the king of the the Mo, I can never pronounce it right but the Malian Mo, he was the, the Mali Empire. Okay. And they were a super big trading empire in that connected like sub-Saharan Africa with northern Africa. That of course is the perfect location to be a trading empire. Yeah. So he he was uh, super super rich. So he, he really fucked over the Ottoman Empire at that time. So a lot of these trade networks kind of already existed with the rest of the world. Europe was pretty poor that we never really took part. Like Ibn Battuta went up and down the entire African coast. He went all the way out to fucking Indonesia. Never even went up to Europe. The trade networks that Europeans were trying to get access to were untapped essentially there's a whole bunch of historical debate about whether or not it was the crusades whether or not it was the plague i don't this isn't the the episode or really the podcast to get into those debates i also think that it's all of those things combined but the the long and short of it is that we were trying to get into those trade networks to switch into this new form of economic system. So as we kind of tried to fit into these trade networks, we realized that we don't actually have any good shit, and it's really hard to get to the the rest of the quote unquote old. That's why we have Columbus's dumbass going into the quote unquote Indies and then labeling everyone there an in Indian to get to the spice trade. So, we're trying to get direct access, and we're trying to get even new trade routes in the old world, and then, as we've discovered, the quote-unquote new world, at first by choice, and then by force in almost every part of the world. So, once we start realizing that no one actually wanted to trade with us, and once we started realizing that in Europe itself, we needed resources to grow our own people and our own kings and our own kind of economy. Uh, and that we just happened to find all of this. I'm going to get into this whole concept of new land in a little bit, which is Turtle Island. the I'm going to be calling it the Americas just because of colloquialisms. So we've, find ourselves in the Americas, we find ourselves in Africa and Asia, and even though almost all of the old world was known, they don't really want our stuff. All of the new world was known by the people who lived there. They are not particularly interested in us in terms of what we have to offer in trade, and we also want everything that they have really really fast. So, we decided to build up the colonies as a way to quickly accumulate resources and capital for the the home colonies. So, colonies have kind of always been a thing. It's it's not really a new concept. As I said, Venice took colonies, pretty much everyone took colonies for resources historically and it's always used to guarantee resources and trade. Because for quite obvious reasons, now you own the place that has the things you want. Um, we still do that today. We France and the UK took all of Africa and South Asia for, uh, for different resources. The US has neocolonies for that. Before this new colonial period, you had Rome and different parts of China and a whole bunch of other things taking and fighting over various parts of whatever continent for whichever region just because they have uh different areas yeah colonialism isn't exactly uh, a new concept in the modern colonial system europe essentially traded with itself to not only gain resources but to pretend that it was actually trading better than it actually was so in the early 1900s 90% 90% of India's imports were from the UK, artificially boosting the United Kingdom's actual economy. So, and also from the 1500s to the 1800s, 80% of the world's silver came from Mexico and Peru, which incredibly boosted Europe's wealth and allowed them to actually trade with China because China wasn't interested in anything but silver. Because that was the basis of their currency. And most importantly for colonies, they provide slave labor to dig out all of the resources that we have. In all of the new colonies that are developing around the world and the new trade networks that are kind of branching out in Africa, West Asia, South Asia, and East Asia by the Europeans, we have... Portuguese and Spanish traders kind of going there first because for whatever reason, Spanish and Portuguese traders were kind of at the forefront of going out and trying to set up trade networks. They had launched inquisitions in the Iberian Peninsula as the beginnings of capital accumulation there to purge the quote-unquote foreign capital holders of their capital holdings and placed that capital in an increasingly concentrated center within the uh, Castilian and whatever the hell the Portuguese uh, monarchy name is, uh, within their families and within the uh, ruling elites. And that kind of kicked off the resource grab and capital accumulation and colonial period in Spain, which happened slightly earlier than the rest of Europe. And within that inquisition we have the, the purging of Muslims, we have the purging of Jews, and we have all of all of that kind of going on. But also when they go to India and Africa and China and Japan, they conduct inquisitions wherever they set up missionaries. So when they showed up to southern India and when they went to Kerala, the southwest of India that is actually a communist stronghold today that did the uh, the best in the fight against COVID in the entire country, they actually purged the entire Jewish community which was one of the oldest communities in the in the Indian subcontinent that moved from western asia to india over the trade networks and it went from several thousand at the the time of portuguese contact quote-unquote to less than 20 today
2: i have a question do you know if there are any like remnants of what the jewish community looked like in india like if their practices like what their practices look like
1: I don't know the exact practices. I know okay. that most of the practicing Jews today are in major northern cities in Delhi. Okay. Where they kind of moved, like a lot of them that still kind of live through all of this moved upwards to funnily enough British territory. Mm-hmm. Cuz even though the British were British were incredibly anti-semitic, they were I guess better than the spanish and the portuguese because they oh, didn't
2: fuck the spanish <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> like if we're doing a, a comparison of who did what this the spanish and the portuguese would burn you at the stake for being whatever religion and the british would just
2: i mean the british would do the same
1: yeah they would do the like same Like with all
2: that blood libel shit that happened oh in yeah
1: yeah, but they, they didn't... Colonizers uh,
2: be colonizing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, let no, let go on. <laughs> yeah, no, my point... I mean, we could keep talking. My point is that, like, the British kind of ended that after a certain point in terms of, like, Happy. colonial policy.
2: <laughs> I mean, the Balfour... Decl- I'll get into that later, but the Balfour Declaration is, like, we don't want Jews in uh, Britain Give up yeah.
1: Palestine. No, uh, no, I know. But like fuck the British, fuck the Spanish.
2: All right. Let's uh let's start where we stopped.
1: <laughs> the the Spanish and the Portuguese purged the Jews when they went to Kerala. Um, yes. there's a big empty synagogue in Kerala that you can go visit if you want. Agreed. Where 20 go when they want to go practice and it it's big enough to house a lot more than that. So it's a little, it's a little sad. And also they would also kind of reeducate the, the Brown people Christians because they weren't practicing the right forms of Christianity, which is also a, a nice touch of the inquisition. The, the Japanese also hated Catholics for their freedoms, though. And they kind of saw what was going on in India and China with missionaries pulling their shit and being kind of the beginning of the colonial project in those regions where you would have missionaries show up, say that they're just going to teach whatever language and bring bring God and his his fiery furnace of of hell and those those mission sites end up just being trading posts to the british and spanish and french and portuguese governor generals and the trading ships and all of that so the japanese just restricted trade to one island they banned catholics and They banned pretty much every other European from kind of being around. There's some argument, though, that trade with Japan and Europe still existed indirectly. So if you wanted, you could go to China and then trade with a Japanese merchant and get your stuff that way. So Japan would eventually be opened up through gunboat by the U.S. in the 1800s, but they kind of kept the Catholics out, and then kept the Protestants out to try and hold off the religious-backed capital accumulation. And then in the, the quote-unquote New World side, we have a Mel Gibson apocalypto scenario going on with white people coming on, coming in, and then saving everyone there from themselves in case that joke is not going over well with you and you haven't seen that movie. You, no one's seen that movie here?
2: Who actually went and saw that movie? Who actually went and saw that movie? <laughs> um, no, I think that came out after Passion of the Christ and everyone's like, Mel Gibson's fucking cuckoo. Because
1: <laughs> I hate myself. That movie's so bad.
2: Why would you choose that? Maybe that's a question
1: for your therapist. <laughs> God, so I'm just one of those asshole podcasters who's so self-referential, only they get the joke. <laughs> okay, so so Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson made Apocalypto, and in Apocalypto, all of the Native Americans are murdering each other for no perceptible reason other than they're in, in it for blood spore. I wish I was actually reducing that to an incoherent Point, but that is literally the plot. Yeah, and then when Uh, it ends, after there's like everyone murdered, (laughs) besides like one or two, I don't quite remember how many. I have
0: a few problems with that. You see
1: the camera pan (laughs) out and there's a Spanish ship in the background.
0: Oh my god.
1: Yeah. (laughs) What? Yeah. It's kind of beautiful.
2: Is it?
1: Beauty can be a lot of things. It could be beauty and its horribleness.
2: Mel Gibson had only one good movie, and that was Braveheart. Everything else has been garbage.
1: No, Braveheart sucks, because... What? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: Excuse the me? The soundtrack is so good.
2: <laughs> okay, Prez, we are going to have a discussion about this offline. <laughs> <laughs> Continue with your topic, please, before (laughs) I become even more joker (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: So the opposite of apocalypto happens where white people show up to the Americas and they bring pestilence and disease because we don't know how to shower or show up to our houses without rats. So...
2: Wait, 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 wait. What It's Christians. White Christians are like that. Jews are the ones that have been washing and taking care of themselves, which is why they were <laughs> just killed and had pogroms committed against them during the plague.
1: Yeah.
2: Let's, just, let's just keep it clear that like, the Christians the, are... The, the Jews were
1: persecuted because they were the only ones not dying. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and they thought it was some sort of magic. It's like, no, we just know our shit. We're not crestpunks.
1: Um, unlike you unlike you people, we know actually how to take care of ourselves,
2: yeah, <laughs> okay. Just want to get that out there. continue. yeah,
1: so so the white people show up, notably, one of the first pe some of the first people to show up were Spanish Jews. I forget the dude's name. He was like a colonial administrator for the Spanish. But I'm getting away from myself. So we show up. we get like, a couple trade trading networks going within the first couple cities that we try and pillage and colonize and destroy and the diseases that we bring like smallpox and, and other stuff, most notably smallpox though, spread up and down the trade networks in South America, Central America and North America way faster than our genocide can go. So before we even brutally enslave people and kill everyone and all of that kind of shit, 80 to 90% of the population is dead before we kind of quote unquote find it. So there were an estimated 115 million people before contact in the both American continents total. At the time, China had 140 million people, and Europe only had 78 million. So it was a pretty massive depopulation. And whoever was left was typically required to be working in the mines, working on whatever farms were left, or being hunted down to have that done. And... A lot of this is because Europeans and the Christian missionaries thought they were heathens. We needed them for workers, and by workers I mean literal slaves, to extract all of their resources and send it back to the imperial core. So while we did have a lot of social and cultural reasons to hate them we had a large economic and political reason to enslave and brutally oppress all of these groups and that's kind of why we still see today all of these kind of systematic oppressions and throughout the last several hundred years all of these kind of systematic enslavements and things like phrenology and a whole bunch of other things trying to kind of justify putting different people in different jobs and mining careers and quote unquote careers, mining slave positions and all of this other stuff and banning different types of miscegenation and who can stand up to disease and why. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of that stuff later. So after everyone's dead and we're trying to, move all of these resources out we kind of need to figure out a reason why if you show up to a huge piece of land that you had no idea about and every other area you've been to is populated and there are a lot of empty cities or depopulated cities or kind of empty kind of empty fields there's some kind of cultural and intellectual hoops you have to jump through to why this happened to justify that it wasn't you that did it so a lot of the early christian missionaries who were there with the spanish actually did document that the farmland is empty. Uh, They didn't really quite say why, but they were still writing down that it looked like there was farmland that was used and is no longer used. There wasn't quite a mention of whether or not all the people there were murdered in war, or if they were in an area that was just enslaved, or if it seemed like everyone had just died of a plague, but we could see the beginnings of what the hell is going on, why is all area empty, kind of quote unquote. So in addition to this need of trying to justify why it's all gone, and if you show up there and now everyone's gone, you you kind of in the back of your head know. Culturally, individually, and politically, you need to figure out how to still extract those resources. Do you enslave everyone? That can only work for so long. Do you start importing workers? Do you bring in slaves from somewhere else? And we see a combination of all those all of those things happen based on the country that is doing the colonizing. So the UK likes to do a mixture of importing slaves and importing colonists spain really liked enslaving everyone and then importing what they needed to to make up the difference and then france was really really big on just bringing in all the slaves they needed so in the old world you pretty much have everyone there to do the work you have the colonies The colonies and the the colonized and the traders who are there, they could do the work. You typically have to pass laws to force them to do the things you want, but you still have them. So the British just passed laws essentially forcing Indians to buy all of their goods a certain way and to make certain goods a certain way and all of that stuff, and that was kind of a done deal the all of europe kind of just split up china to force all of their farmers and merchants and stuff to make everything for send everything that they were making back to europe and that was kind of all done through coercion back in the americas you kind of needed to build everything that you wanted there when you weren't extracting it so Even though you were having kind of a skeleton crew of a government because you were just setting up what you needed to to ship everything out, you still had budding colonies in the Americas like what turns into the United States, what eventually becomes Brazil, and some other other colonies like uh like Haiti that start to develop kind of a more centralized government based on the products that they're making to kind of centralize the the capital accumulation and the resources that they're kind of gathering and send it out in a coordinated manner the the benefit of this is that in this kind of new world scenario, these governments can also deal with the unstable political situations that are kind of developing post-apocalypse. Because no one really likes being genocided, and if an entire area and an entire continent and entire two continents lose 80-90% to of the population, whatever political and... whatever political factions exist and whatever nations exist are they're not exactly going to have a good time so the solidification of these new kind of colonial governments make dealing with those quote-unquote instabilities easier to allow for this capital accumulation to keep going and this is kind of allowing for all of the resources that they have like Gold and silver and sugar and mercury and chocolate and dyes to be shipped off back to the old world. Even though some stuff is not native. So some of the dyes and they have to import sugar to some of the Caribbean nations because they otherwise don't have quote-unquote profitable land otherwise. So they don't have mineral, a lot of mineral resources. And kind of to work within this material exploitation of this emptiness there's a new tactic that the the pope actually develops called the doctrine of discovery which states that all non-christian land is unknown and unutilized and can be legitimately seized and that's essentially developed right after Spanish and Portuguese traders start going into Africa and Asia, and then a couple treaties are made, like the Treaty of Saragossa and the Treaty of Tordesillas, which are designed to split up North and South America, and then later the entire eastern hemisphere right there's the western hemisphere and the eastern hemisphere so the first treaty gives all non-christian land east of brazil to portugal and all non-christian land west of brazil to spain and then the second treaty the treaty of saragossa gives all non-christian land from africa to korea portugal and they gave spain all non-christian land between the Pacific Ocean to the Americas to Spain. And when I first learned about this in like high school and when I see it in forums and talked about in other places, it's kind of joked off as like it was almost immediately disregarded because this only applied to Catholics. Why would why would any of the Protestant nations really give a shit about what the pope was saying because the entire part of the reformation was a political and e- economic kind of movement away from the pope and all of his power over europe but we see this be used in 1792 by thomas jefferson who claimed that it was actually international law and can be used by the us and all European states to divvy up land between them, and we actually see our our uh, not fan of the show because she's dead. One of our favorite uh, Supreme Court justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we
2: could be a fan of the show. Who knows? You can't <laughs> speak for her. She might have listened.
1: Yeah, maybe friend, sure.
2: friend of the show.
0: Friend of the show. She's she's too busy playing Quidditch in heaven. Mind your business. <laughs> With
2: Kobe Bryant.
0: Yeah, I hereby. Exactly.
1: I hereby dedicate this episode to Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
2: Uh, <laughs> um, so our ending song should be some memorial song to R.G.B.
1: It's gonna be "I will always love you." God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in Cheryl versus the uh, the Oneida Nation in two thousand five, she actually cited the Discovery Doctrine, written by the Pope, the fucking Pope in the fourteen hundreds. Why is
2: the Jew going off of what a Pope says, anyways? That makes zero sense.
1: I don't. I don't. The fucking loops, the loop, the hoops that these fucking people
2: the
3: jump through.
1: She cited the discovery doctrine written in the 1400s by the fucking pope.
2: What a piece of shit!
1: To say that all land seized by the government is legitimately done so. What a piece of shit! To to justify why the United Nation can't buy back land from the federal government.
2: Yes, Queen.
1: Love it. (laughs) And people worry about the fucking Pope taking over through a Catholic being elected president. We have the Pope infiltrating the American government through the Supreme Court right here. I have proof, goddammit. So with all of this shit going on and just taking land and purposefully and accidentally killing 90 to 95% of the population and... Of course that means some some tribes are completely erased cuz this is an average so like some groups just completely stop existing and all of that kind of stuff. So between all of all of the the enslavement and destruction of the general population and accumulation of resources and removing of resources from the Americas and Africa and India and China and East Asia, we'll, we eventually get to Japan later, but that's that's a while. We start to get into this space of how do we have productivity? Because once we start getting resources, we need to actually do stuff with it, right? We don't just... Get these nice shiny metals and all of this, all of this land, just to have it, and we don't kill all of these people just because we want to. That happens later. That happens a few hundred years later when we want to just go to a country and then murder everyone. And it still kind of happens in war back then and whatever. But in in the the wider base and superstructure, you don't. You don't do all of this stuff just for the hell of it. So once we get all of all of these resources and all this land, and in Europe too, you're you're missing about a third of your population, and you need to do something with all of this empty farmland. So we need to start going through the process of primitive accumulation. And this is in Kind of talked about it by various people. Sylvia Federici goes through more of a feminist lens. Engels goes we through it.
2: Recommend that uh, book, Caliban yes. and the Witch. Highly recommend it.
1: Caliban and the Witch is very good. Engels also goes through it. Marx goes through it a little bit, but Angles kind of really hits down on it. Angles is the under is underappreciated, really. But yeah, read read Caliban and the Witch. So. With primitive accumulation, we have before we get to capitalism, we have to go through primitive accumulation, where whatever underutilized resources we have are kind of consolidated together, and we go from a bunch of people owning a little bit to an, a decreasing amount of people owning more and more. Um, so we might we see in Europe we have a bunch of people living in common, in, in the common, uh, sharing a significant amount of farmland, and in primitive accumulation there, they're all kind of kicked out, and then the literal lord becomes the landowner, and then they rent that land. That's where we get the term landlord. This foreclosure of land into private property is the kind of construct of redeveloping empty land. If the land is not owned, it is not used. And if it is not being used, it's empty. And we see this kind of consolidation and primitive accumulation begin happening in Europe and then spread out through the colonies. So when we see different groups of people not use ownership the same way that we do or there's just no people left to own the land we think that it's being underutilized or it's up for grabs to be owned and in both cases it's like the pope said all that land is unknown and unutilized and it is legitimate to be grabbed by europeans so, any of this empty land then is kind of unproductive in its no ownership because if no one owns it, you can't work it. If you don't have a title and a deed, what happens today? You can't just set up a factory and you, or you can't set up a farm. You can't just show up to an empty plot of land and start working on it because you don't know if anyone else owns it. And You don't know if the town owns it and all of that stuff. So you need to go through the quote-unquote right processes to get that capital. And that begins applying to mines and rivers and streams and all of this stuff that used to be held in common, which it just so happened was at the beginning of colonialism, held by the state, and then slowly divvied out to colonial governors and a lot of the major people who were working in the colonial regime. And within this kind of beginning of the market and its accumulation of capital and resources within this marketplace, we begin having a construction of literal capitalism so this is about when in the late 1600s early to mid 1700s we begin getting the pre-adam smith pre-capitalist philosophies and then we get to adam smith and his capitalism where we get the written down fully realized ideologies that capital accumulation is actually needed for market growth. You can't just show up and work a piece of land perpetually as farmers in a kind of zero growth model for the good of society like it was during feudalism and like it was in most of the world before Europeans started colonizing. The real way to grow the economy was to accumulate as much resources of capital as you can and then essentially sell it in whatever way you could. And this requires, as we've kind of picked up by Marx, I'm not really gonna go through his his kind of rendition of capitalism, but we kind of need as much cooperation between the state and the ruling class and the least amount of pay and working conditions for workers and under literal colonialism, this is literal slavery, and for the non enslaved colonists, it's as horrible conditions as possible, which led in, in the 1800s to the workers' movements and the unions and stuff that we uh, are seeing today. So, as as we're going through the primitive accumulation and the redefinition of emptiness into anything that's not really being owned we have this redefinition of a person into really someone who survived and went through a primitive accumulation so we have essentially christians and northern europeans because as i kind of mentioned earlier in the iberian peninsula we have jews and muslims and other religious minorities be kicked out and murdered and deprived of all of their capital holdings and property under what is essentially primitive accumulation under the inquisition to place all of all of these resources and capital under the crown and the state which then ended up funding the conquests of or the initial exploration of the americas so after that then we have primitive accumulation happening in northern europe and then it slowly spreading into slowly spreading east into like italy although very slowly in italy and then it also spread in germany and then over over time so as primitive accumulation went on you have people who survived becoming a people who can participate in the market, which is where we see people who are dehumanized being, even today, disabled people, people who have historically been part of the groups that have been subjected to slavery and genocide or colonization, where we see them as colonial subjects. And then we see kind of a scientific definition of a person to back all of this up. So we see a scientific definition of what is being able, and being able is a definition of being able to be productive. And being a person from a real people in, in the, the wider general sense is being from a people who are sufficiently developed. So then we have this the the racial hierarchy that developed very quickly with the blood quantum and then eventually phrenology and then it became a a whole thing. So we have the most productive societies that were the the most colonial. I don't know why the Spanish and the Portuguese were never quite considered white because they were one of the first people to colonize, but. The Spanish, the the English, and the French, and like the Scandinavians, and then eventually the Germans. Even though the Germans were were a little late to the whiteness party, uh, Northern Europeans were considered the most productive group of people, and therefore kind of the most deserving of the personhood title. Then you have descending order of Europeans based on how much they like to work. <laughs> with Italians being considered some of the laziest I mean, and then actually being sometimes very derogatorily considered african even until today depending on which region of italy you are so the the kind of racial hierarchy was built around who can work and for what purpose so you even with black slaves you have who is most fitting for which work there, there were various definitions for which part of Asia you're from for South Asians. It was different than East Asian and they were typically kind of developed for who was built for hard labor and who wasn't. And groups of people that you were like ethnicities that were stereotyped as your trading partners were usually deemed untrustworthy people like in your genetics, even though genetics was a, wasn't a thing yet, the group of people were deemed untrustworthy if you were stereotyped as the people you, were, you would be trading with. And this was kind of backed up with philosophy. So we get people like Voltaire, Hume, Kant, and the Tocqueville, one of the assholes who you'll be forced to read if you have to take uh, AP U.S. History. So like Voltaire invested in the French East India Company, even though everyone says that he was a uh, a philosopher who loved discussing freedom and all of that stuff. No one ever really mentions that part of it. He was incredibly anti-Semitic and incredibly racist. So he would kind of write about why different groups in Africa were not necessarily worthy of enslavement, but they weren't equal to Europeans, and he would also very commonly write about why Jews shouldn't be in Europe or be trusted. Yeah, he's he's not that great. Hume actually wrote a whole thing about racial hierarchies. Kant was really anti-Semitic. I think you guys know where this is going. But de Tocqueville actually wrote that indigenous people part of the reason why they have unproductive land and why it's kind of just for the u.s to take everything over is because indigenous people have quote ancient traditions that cause inconsistent opinions end quote with property property ideology and I similarly found this quote that's related to the concept of the U.S. as a kind of virgin frontier land, untouched by everything, which I hope I kind of nailed down was never really the case. There were cities that were larger than any European capital, so like the uh, Aztec capital right before contact was larger than any European city at the time. There were entire, there were entire tribes in the US that had larger populations than similar regions in, in Europe, and so on and so forth. People influenced the, the entire flora and fauna of a region through agriculture. Nothing really different than anywhere else in the world. Herbert Crowley the founder of New Republic, which I'm sure some of some of us have hopefully maybe heard of. He said, had it not been for the Atlantic Ocean and the Virgin Wilderness, the United States would never have been the land of promise. And he was one of the, the main kind of progressive era leaders at the time. So he was kind of right up there trying to push... Uh, Woodrow Wilson and everyone to adopt kind of progressive policies. So as we accumulated all this capital and destroyed everything, we decided that it'd be a good job to redevelop all these areas and civilize them. And this wasn't because we had anything to gain out of it. It was because we needed to show all of these groups that they could do these things because as our racial hierarchies determined, we needed to show them how to be productive. So we quote unquote, gifted they gifted them railroads. It had nothing to do with the fact that all the railroads accidentally ran from the mines that we owned to the ports that we also owned. and also, just somehow made no stops between the villages, but it it was our gift to them. And we also gave all of these people schools and missions to learn English and French and Spanish. And it has no real skin off our nose that they were banned from their language. There's this quote from Sir John MacDonald, one of the most famous prime ministers of Canada, he is on one of the notes quoted as saying, slight content warning. it's it's not the most tolerable quote. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with his parents, who are savages. He is surrounded by savages. He is simply a savage who can read and write. So the schools and missions were created to remove all of these children from, what are essentially genocide camps and remove the culture as part of the wider attempt to remove indigenous people in the americas and then in the rest of the world remove the colonized people from areas that are resource rich and in the cases in the americas we're typically trying to finish up the genocide. So in in the schools that John A. McDonald was talking about, we were banning them from speaking their own language and doing their own religious practices and a whole bunch of other stuff like that while we continued to push them and their families off of their tribal land and the historic land so that we could mine it and extract further resources because they just weren't using it the way that we thought would be profitable. And all of the lost wealth and productive forces that were kind of taken away from India and China and Africa and from indigenous tribes should be brought back. So Now, India needs to industrialize, China needs to industrialize, we need to raise indigenous people out of poverty, but it's not because of colonialism and the pillaging of these regions or from the cultural genocide that kept people from really joining whatever system or from continuing to to work their land and then staying in the economy that way it was because all of these groups inherently are non-productive people. So, for example, in 1500, India had 10 times the global economic strength of France, and having 24% of the global economy. By 1900, India only had 2% of the global economy, mainly because India was forced to trade almost all of their goods with the UK and they were banned from trading finished goods. They could only send pre-processed goods, so they would have to send like cotton that was un undone. They they could send like cotton bolts and bolt. They could send bolts of linen, but they couldn't send finished shirts. And then they would have to buy the finished shirts back from the UK and all of that kind of stuff. On top of sending all of the minerals. In 1500, China accounted for about like 30% of the global economy, and by 1900, it was 3%. So this was, this is even today. We we still see all of these headlines about why is Africa so poor? How do we get Indians to work in certain types of jobs? How do we uh, do all of this kind of stuff in every different type of population? And it's kind of just implying that all of these groups are good at a specific type of thing, and we have to train them to essentially do something else out of their inherent goodness, out of our inherent goodness and their inherent ability to do one thing at a time. And today, this is translated to a variety of things through it being their fault for losing wealth. So we've always kind of thought that it's their fault for. Being overpopulated. More people means more resources to keep everyone kind of happy. And I mean that in the broadest sense possible. We kind of helped forge eugenics at home and abroad this way, um, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So we don't want the population getting too large. And especially, we don't want too many of the bad people. And if people are poor, that means that they did something wrong. It's It has nothing to do with society. And this actually kind of helped forge a few different policies globally, originally developed in Europe with eugenics, European eugenicists who we now call population scientists that are hired by Bill Gates and the UN and all of these, these assholes.
2: They're called population scientists? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it's disgusting. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> Fuck Bill Gates.
1: AOC actually worked for a uh, a Bill oh, Gates yeah. funded. Yeah, yeah,
2: this piece of did. shit.
1: <laughs> it's it, it population scientists and population health.
2: Those are definite dog whistles, I think, for eugenics.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's uh, population health policy is is the uh, is the thing to work in now. It's the most fucking insane thing. Cause like, how could a pop? Uh, they don't mean population health in like health policy. How to keep the population healthy? They mean how to keep the population at a at a quote unquote healthy fucking level. So like this this eugenics shit about there be that there being too many poor people, there being too many disabled people, there being too many people from colonized nations and genocided groups and too many Jews and other ethnic and religious groups in Europe that we don't like went abroad. So we have uh, the emergency in India in the 1970s. They actually had eugenicists slash population scientists. I'm going to try and reinforce that they're the same thing. Consult Indira Gandhi's government before this actually happened that to reduce the population, you need to not necessarily sterilize the women, but sterilize the men too. So during the emergency that lasted, I think, five years, she had her son run a lot of the the programs. So the emergency in India was a fascist state of emergency that Indira Gandhi, no relation to Mahatmas Gandhi, she just adopted the name. But Indira Gandhi did a state of emergency in the 1970s that lasted for around five years. It was essentially a fascist rule for five-ish years. She put her son in a, in charge of a whole bunch of things. Right before that, she consulted with, with a bunch of eugenicists. Now we call them population scientists. Those eugenicists told her that to keep the population, quote-unquote, healthy, meaning that to keep the economy growing um, and to keep the GDP growing and per capita GDP rising, we need to reduce the population. And the best way to do that is to have sterilization campaigns. And when people didn't willingly sterilize during the emergency, her son instituted a policy of just picking up men in a van uh, when they were walking around. And then we also have the much-hated-in-the-West one-child policy run by China was actually developed by consultation with the West. This isn't necessarily to call it eugenicist, but the the concept that the world is going to end if you have too much of a population because there just straight up is not going to be enough resources is from Western eugenicists. Under Mao, China was thinking that we should just have family planning and all that stuff. And then after meeting with all of these Europeans, they got really worried about how we're all going to starve to death if uh, we don't get our, our uh, population under control. So then they instituted the one child policy, which is way better than any European conception of it because they actually exclude historically oppressed minorities and Ethnicities and religious groups from the one-child policy. So you have like farmers, and you have Tibetans, and you have people in, and uh, you even have like Uyghurs who are completely excluded from the one-child policy. Can have as many kids as they want. There was also kind of this conception that all of these colonized people were deserve to lose all of their wealth and resources because they were easily beaten. It's this whole kind of guns, germs and steel argument that if you kind of wanted to keep your shit, you should have defended it. And we still kind of see that today. I mean, we, that's, that's when that book came out, but it's, it's this, this war mentality of to keep our resources. We need to have this bigger military and to, Still, constantly expand through military conquest. So this is why we keep invading different areas. This is why we're now funding the color revolution in in Xinjiang, and this is why we even set up the state of Israel to help get a beachhead in the Middle East to uh, have secure to help keep resources secure. We also have some weird eugenicist arguments that because there are groups of people who before europeans ever showed up to give them a sense of what property rights are they're still never going to really understand what property is and that's why there's so much corruption in global south countries this is why there's. So many, this is why there's so many protests and riots and coups and all of this stuff. If they really respected property as a people and as a culture and kind of historically, culturally, it's kind of the, the Gramsci in the sense of grammar. <laughs> We're going to do a Gramsci episode, I swear.
2: Yeah. Are we doing Gramsci next? Gramsci? Is it Gramsci or Gramsci? It's... Uh,
1: he's Italian, so it's it's however it's the Gramsci. Fuck
2: want.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, like, the long historical narrative that goes beyond the last couple governments, like a deep cultural respect of property. If this existed, then... They never would have lost so much wealth, and they would have been building their wealth up so much faster. And they're really just kind of difficult to administer. A lot of Europe, aside from like the U.S. and Canada and Australia, most colonizer countries are tiny. It's very easy to democratically democratically rule them and enforce property. We can bend over backwards to justify why Australia functions, although I would still argue that Australia is a non-functioning government. And so this is why you have shit like India's the biggest democracy. Like people point out that India is the biggest democracy in the world, as if they're awestruck that it that it can function and no one seems to like kind of point out that all of the borders were developed by, by the colonial powers and why all of these just horrible government structures exist that make parliamentary democracy almost inoperable because it's all based on their colonizer government and no one actually wants to use that system because that system almost never works and so like all of these reasons justify post-hoc why we took all of this land by laying onto the cultural and uh by developing a kind of cultural language as to why these different groups of people deserve to be colonized and why they even did get colonized and who these groups of people even are. And that kind of brings us into eugenics more more
0: concretely. Thank you, Prez. All right, is it my turn? It is. All right. <laughs> yes. So my section is about the evolution of eugenics a little bit in the United States mostly, and I'm going to be relating the racial science behind it and uh, as it relates to the development of Zionism. And so, this first section I'm going to be reading from a few excerpts from a paper called Eugenic Nation by Alexandra Minna-Stern, and it mostly talks about, these sections talk about the development of eugenics in California specifically, because it kind of encapsulates how racial science coincided with the expansion of the United States into the West. All right, so. California, Birth of Eugenics and Ideas of Degeneracy. And this first section is from Eugenic Nation. If there was one word to which reformers gravitated to express their predicament, it was degeneration. A concern with degeneration was sparked in part by Darwinism and monogenesis, which posited that humans were much closer to animals, specifically primates, than suggested by polygenesis. Not only was reversion to a more primitive state possible according to the hierarchies formulated by physical anthropologists, It was already embodied by types further down on the evolutionary ladder. The turn of the 20th century was the heyday of racial taxonomies that placed whites and Europeans at the apex of civilization, blacks and Africans on the bottom rungs, and nearly everyone else in the suboptimal middle position of hybridity and mongrelization. In the United States, the solidification of these racial hierarchies was integral to the entrenchment of Jim Crow segregation after Reconstruction and the rise of Sinophobia and anti-Asian discrimination and it helps to rationalize colonial ventures in Latin America and the Pacific. Furthermore, doctrines of racial decline coincided with the advent of modern contraception and fertility drops in parts of Western Europe and the United States, each of which prompted some reformers to worry that the flagging birth rate of the fit was being outpaced by the rampant propagation of the unfit. In the United States, degenerationism translated into alarm about immigration invasions and miscegenation and admonition, admonitions against race suicide, which President Theodore Roosevelt, for one, was convinced was jeopardizing America's vitality and global stature. Eugenics was sown in the soil of degenerationism. And so now I'm getting more into how eugenics related to this idea of the the preservation of nature. Reading again from Eugenic Nation. The affinity between eugenic and environmentalist ideas about the purity and preservation of nature can be captured by reviewing the origins of the interpretive parks movement and the Save the Redwoods League, both of which were generously supported by Charles M. Goeth, the Sacramento businessman who launched the Eugenic Society of Northern California. Eugenicists profoundly shaped California's landscapes. Their approaches to the environment encompassed the entire spectrum, from preservationists fiercely intent on forever insulating the wonders of nature from intrusion, to parks and recreation enthusiasts who wanted to build roads, lookouts, and concessions, to make the outdoors more accessible, if not commercially profitable. What unites them is the extent to which they comprehended California's biota and topography through a framework of selective breeding, one in which specific species and organisms were elevated, chosen, and revered over others. In a more general sense, they viewed exposure to nature as a method of containing the worst and actualizing the best of humans' evolutionary and hereditary predispositions. Almost always, their vision at once mirrored and extended into the world of plants and animals, the Pacific West's brand of nativism and racial exclusion. California eugenicists interwove hereditarian and evolutionary tenets and motifs into the narratives they crafted about the Pacific West and westward empire as the crucible of the American nation. As part of the rush of European-American settlers who sought to order and appropriate post-colonial California, eugenicists fabricated origin stories about the exceptionalism of the West. They frequently invoked the trope of the Garden of Eden, now being harvested anew by a superior class of colonists. In a complementary fashion, eugenicists also conceived of the West as a savage frontier, where men afflicted by the deleterious effects of urbanization and industrialization could be restored through mountaineering, bareback riding, and communing with the primeval forest. At the turn of the 20th century, this was often tied to fantasies of a tribe of white supermen marching westward to the ocean, carrying the banner of civilization. Joseph P. Whitney, a Los Angeles physician, propounded by the Aryanization of the entirety of the Pacific coast, and for Teddy Roosevelt, staving off race suicide involved remasculinizing and toughening up the country's flaccid men in the Badlands and Borderlands. Commonly, these narratives about winning the West or the conquest of a continent trace the forging of the American Republic back thousands of years from the dawn of homo sapiens to the gradual global dominance of Nordics, and finally to the dire urgency of ensuring the perpetuation of pioneer stock. Since the late 19th century, efforts of preservation and conservation have been based primarily on the idea that nature must remain unimpaired by human interference. The concept of pristine wilderness was part of the ideology of settlement and conquest that European Americans brought to the American West. Even though Native Americans had interacted for centuries with the Western landscape, burning controlled fires, for instance, to ensure the longevity of mature oak trees. Many European-Americans insisted that what eventually became Yosemite and Big Basin were unspoiled territories that they alone had discovered and were compelled to defend at times with army scouts. The origin stories incorporated broad themes of the rational exploitation of land, soil, and natural resources in pursuit of a Pacific paradise. More often than not, these narratives of racial regeneration countenanced white supremacy, Whether taking the Neo-Lamarckian or Mendelian route, California eugenicists penned narratives that touted the region's superior species and biological versatility, the protection of ancient wilderness and the rationally managed utilization of the soil. More often than not, this revolved explicitly around celebration of the cultural and scientific conquest of the West by the fabled races of the Anglo-Saxons and Nordics and condemnation of the inferior stock of immigrants, especially Mexicans. By writing evocatively and extensively about geology, vegetation, plant breeding, and redwoods, and heralding their privileged place in California's landscapes, eugenesis naturalized notions of racial difference and interlaced another thread into the mythology of the Pacific West as Garden of Eden and the frontier of American opportunity. So basically, kind of sum up what I just read. As ideas of evolution were popularized, the, a fear emerged that was if species and societies can evolve over time, and humans are merely animals, does that mean humans can revert to a primitive state? And in response, ideas of a biological race and the hygiene of races starts to flourish. This coincides with myths created by historical revisionism, ideas of virgin land and expansionism, with white people as saviors or victors of the land. This colonial line of reasoning is further reinforced through eugenics-based racism towards colonized people, that we are surplus a burden on the government and unmotivated transitions so this next section is kind of about the ideas of overpopulation that prez also touched on earlier This paper I'm reading from now is Perpetuating Neocolonialism Through Population Control, South Africa and the United States by Monica Bahati Kumba. And I apologize if I mispronounced that. The racist content of population control strategies in the United States became widely apparent at the turn of the century with the popularizing of the race suicide notion. This concept was even vocalized in a 1905 speech by President Theodore Roosevelt, who condemned birth control among specific U.S. populations, white women for fear of the annihilation of the white race. These sentiments became known as a concern about race suicide, the fear that the Yankee stock, which displayed the lowest birth rates, would be overwhelmed numerically and hence politically by immigrants, non-whites, and the poor. In 1939, the Birth Control Federation of America went so far as to plan a Negro project. The strategy included the recruitment of African-American ministers to assist in the promotion of birth control among African-Americans who were considered the portion of the population least fit and least able to rear children properly. The integration of the birth control and eugenics movement took organizational expression in such entities as the Birth Control Federation of America, Population Reference Bureau, and the Planned Parenthood Federation. At their inception, all of these organizations had birth control as a means of reducing the population of immigrants and Blacks as their stated mission. They also had interlocking leadership with such racist collectives as the American Eugenics Society and the Race Betterment Conference. The South African equivalent can be found in the white political rhetoric of the black peril. According to this logic, the unchecked population growth of the indigenous African population posed a threat to white power, safety, and profits. This ideology became institutionalized with the formation of the Family Planning Association, which emerged in 1932 and merged with the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1953. By 1983, there were 21,000 birth control clinics targeting African women, which offered only contraceptive devices. A second parallel underlying the population policies directed at African women in South Africa and the United States lies in the relationship between growing economic displacement and an intensification of population control efforts. Structural change in the economies, increased technology, and worldwide economic recession has resulted in large surplus labor pools that are disproportionately composed of Africans in both countries. According to a South African scholar, to the South African government, an ample population became overpopulation when the labor reserve became too large, rather than when poverty and underemployment first developed. Likewise, coercive birth control tactics that largely affect African-American women have intensified in concert with growing unemployment and rising poverty in the United States. For instance, mandatory birth control associated with criminal convictions and welfare transfer payment receipts emerged in 1992, a year of record high unemployment and poverty among African-Americans. Instead of altering the underlying sources of the problems, the official position has been to alter the African population itself. And now I'm going to jump back to Eugenic Nation for another excerpt. For example, when the reproductive and erotic body is highlighted, an uninterrupted line can be drawn from the sterilization laws passed by state legislatures in the 1910s that targeted morons and the feeble-minded to the sexual surgeries performed by poor female welfare recipients during the 1960s. As the 20th century progressed, and following the simplification and routinization of the salpingectomy, removal of one or both fallopian tubes, which still entailed greater risks and longer conveyances than the vasectomy in the 1930s, more operations began to be performed on women than men. This transition indicates that the forced sterilization of women in the United States was interwoven with the enlargement of the welfare state, the denigration of dependent and single mothers, and the perceived burden of illegitimate children. This was certainly the case in North Carolina, where sterilization of African-American women deemed unfit and incapable of proper parenting rose in the 1950s and 1960s. For more than 50 years, involuntary sterilizations were motivated by a shifting mix of anxieties about sexual deviance and the promiscuity of teenage girls, fears of biological deterioration, and a discourse of institutional cost saving. So I wanna contrast all of that against indigenous people in the United States specifically, because there's the idea that, you know, colonized people are excess Partly because they tend to be the ones that make up most of the labor reserve. And so it reinforces eugenic racial science of like, these people aren't are inherently inferior. They aren't as productive. They aren't as smart. And that then influences it influences these ideas of like needing to save money by spreading myths about like welfare queens and, like, One way that this manifests is that indigenous water and land defenders are frequently cast as lazy and jobless. I found a specific article from Al Jazeera. uh, It quotes a specific land defender. The article says, meanwhile, just over 500 kilometers east in the prairie city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Erica Violet Lee is taking a break after several days of overseeing a rail blockade set up there. She is a community organizer and a graduate of the social justice program at the University of Toronto. She is also a member of the Thunderchild First Nation and supports the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And for context, this was when, uh, you know, this is in the context of the the real blockades that many indigenous people across Canada were putting up in solidarity with the pipeline that was being put through in the Wet'suwet'en territory in British Columbia. Lee says that she and others participating in the blockade were subjected to threats from a group of counter-protesters. They were yelling at us, saying racial slurs like Indians, lazy, and assumed none of us had jobs, she says. It was hard not to talk back. We we are out to defend future generations. We weren't doing anything illegal. Since the beginning of colonization, anthropologists have been saying that we were simple peoples and needed enlightenment through the white man. So it goes that we are unfit for our land. We merely exist on it instead of being in complex relation with it. And white people steal it to develop it in their superior ways, even in the context of parks and conservation areas, which preserves land primarily for recreational or scientific use. I would argue as well that the system of logic, this dichotomy of pure nature and diseased urban living that justifies land grabs from native territory, functions in the opposite way for non-white, primarily black neighborhoods in major cities. As explicit and implicit forms of segregation force poor black people and other people of color into particular areas, pollution and ecological destruction is outsourced to these areas, or the people themselves are pushed into polluted areas as part of a self-sustaining rhetoric, dialectic, that black people tend to be consigned to poor living conditions through capitalist white supremacy. But instead of this being a systemic problem, somehow black people bring this poverty upon themselves through their nature. It essentializes their class struggle as being part of a biological race. As rich urban areas expand, they price out poor people who are primarily people of color because their communities and homes are devalued and, and invalidated. They pressure people into moving out and then use this land to build freeways, generic overpriced rental properties or homes, and other gentrification projects. Rich white people ignore the systemic issues they created that causes poorer areas to be more polluted and in fact exploit it to obtain low-cost land and develop it in their superior ways. This eugenics also made its way into Zionism, even down to rescuing men from unhealthy urban living and bringing them to a promised land so as to improve the hygiene of the race. And so this is where it gets... Really crazy. Now I'm going to show how Zionism started with a lot of this also racial hygiene rhetoric. And I'm going to be reading mostly from uh, a paper called Mental Hygiene and Disability in the Zionist Project by Sandy Sufian. Zionist immigration to Palestine began during the late Ottoman period. It was under British rule, the Mandate period from 1918 to 1947, that the issue of disability took on particular relevance. Before and during the Mandate period, Zionist ideologues believed that changing the mental state of the Jewish people, from one steeped in diasporic oppression to one of promised political and emotional liberation in Palestine, was of utmost importance to building a normalized nation. Indeed, collective mental disability is a powerful theme that runs throughout Zionist ideological formations and medical discourse. Operating within the British mandatory government's overarching system with its increasingly strict immigration controls... Zionist leaders and doctors encouraged selective immigration policies, repatriation to Europe, or institutionalization of the mentally ill, in order to contain and manage what they saw as a serious challenge to the achievement of an ideal society made up of dedicated, resilient, unencumbered new Jews in Palestine. In so doing, they prioritized access to the fledgling Jewish homeland to able-bodied individuals. In general, Zionist doctors did not seem to recognize the tension between an exclusionary immigration policy and larger Zionist ideological claims about Zionism's potential to heal all Jewish people in the land. Thus, Zionism operated on two perhaps paradoxical tiers, one of collective disability, able to undergo a curative transformation, and one of individual pathology deemed as incapable of changing and therefore lacking the potential of ever becoming the autonomous ideal. So... Also, this is my own note, this larger rhetoric also allows for anti-Zionist Jews to be framed as confused and self-hating, because if you hate Israel, you don't want Jewish people to get better, to improve, and to recover from the diseased state of being persecuted. The paper does not mention that, but I thought that that was an interesting way to look at it. It is, it essentializes, like, uh, it enables the position of anti-Zionism to be pathologized in its own way. Having its roots in mid-19th century Eastern and Western Europe, Zionism was a response to the strong anti-Semitism that Jews faced in the diaspora. One of the main goals of Zionism was to cure Jews and improve their lot, physically, mentally, socially, economically, and politically. In addition to finding a political answer to Jewish oppression, The Zionist movement tried to transform the socioeconomic profile of the Jews and their physical and psychological status. Although there were many strands within Zionism, the majority of those active in the movement felt that solving the Jewish problem in Europe required securing Jewish autonomy in Palestine. Autonomy, they argued, would normalize the Jewish nation amongst a community of nations. This hopeful status stood in opposition to the abnormal, marginalized status they possessed in Europe. The associated understanding of normalization, either explicit or implicit, was that the Jewish people in its present situation suffered from anomaly at best, and at worst from a condition that was altogether pathological. It ultimately extended to include attributes of mentality, namely emotional characteristics and psychological dispositions purportedly common among Jews as individuals and in Jewish society as a whole. Framing the Jewish problem as one about normalcy created the issue of difference and disability by inferring the modern idea of a deviation from the norm. Debates about the physical and mental quality of Jews in the diaspora, as well as its transformative ideal Zionist counterpart, were deeply influenced by late 19th century European medical discourses of social Darwinism, eugenics, degeneration, deviance, and racial hygiene. You might recognize a few of those terms. Jewish racial science developed within the academic study of Judaism, the Wissenschaft des Judentums. Jewish doctors and scientists in the diaspora used Gentile consumption to refute contain their ancient distinct racial identity, and that their regrouping as a nation in their homeland would have profound eugenic consequences, primarily halting the degeneration they fell prey to because of the conditions imposed on them in the past. Anti-Semites argued that Jews, being a largely urban race, had no roots in the land. Their economic profile made them subsequently shamed and and ashamed, and they were destined to remain that way. Their status was unchangeable. In this rhetoric, the conception of the Jews' physically and mentally afflicted individual bodies was symbolic of national moral disorder. Most Zionist thinkers did not fundamentally contest the description of this anti-Semitic sentiment. For both anti-Semites and many Zionists, this degenerate image applied to all Jews. Even many Jewish racial scientists elided internal Jewish differences by country, language, or occupation, and created a racial topology. Zionist racial scientists and nationalist thinkers like Arthur Rupin, head of the settlement office in Palestine of the Zionist organization. Elias Auerbach, Ignaz Zolshin, and others responded to anti-Semitic perceptions by arguing that there was a potential for cure for their collective state of being, that Jewish characteristics were not permanently inscribed or irreversible. For Zionists like A.D. Gordon, such debased traits could be altered through relocation to Palestine and through physical labor and hygiene. Some Zionist thinkers even viewed anti-Semitism as a disease that could not be reformed, providing yet another reason for Jewish transplantation to a new territory. Relocation would lead to national renaissance, restoring Jewish dignity and Jewish physicality. Healing the diaspora Jew in Zionist discourse required a representational and physical inversion whereby a new Hebrew man perceived as strictly male would be born healthy in body and mind, muscular, strong, virile, proud, and productive. Much like the anti-Semitic claim about Jews' individual pathology as a symbol of national disorder, in Zionist ideology, creating an individual new Jewish body and mind signified creating a new healthy Jewish nation. The vision of a new Hebrew man is widely attributed to Max Nordau, one of Theodor Herzl's, the father of political Zionism, one of his closest associates, and a neurologist by profession. In 1898, Nordau called for the reformation of Jewish bodies through the creation of a nation of muscle Jews. Nordau asserted that diaspora Jews could overcome their hereditary nervous state by becoming physically and athletically fit. His views greatly impacted subsequent labor Zionist efforts to reform the Jewish body. Ideas of rehabilitating the Jew formed the basis of Zionist health programs in Palestine, including those of mental hygiene. Public health programs were seen as central to curing the Jews of their assumed collective pathology. These programs sought to prevent infectious disease morbidity, address uh, psychological stresses, and promote physical exercise and agricultural labor. As one member of the Social Service Department of the Vad Luwami, General Counsel, wrote of its mission in 1936. The life of the Jewish people in Palestine is to be shaped by redemption of the soil through united communal effort and liberation of the people through mutual help in the communal striving for the realization of the ideal. So, Zionism frames the diaspora as unhealthy, degenerative, and the state of Israel as pure and ideal. It is a hopeless solution to antisemitism because not only is it a colonial genocidal project, but it also identifies antisemitism as the fault of Jews being in diaspora and not a systemic problem compelled by class conflict. It identifies antisemitism as being innate to existing as a Jew rather than a systemic problem that can be combated in the places we already live. This also means that by its nature, Zionism perpetuates antisemitism by positioning diaspora Jews as fundamentally unhealthy Zionism did not contest this anti-Semitic sentiment, rather it legitimized it by admitting Jewish diversity and implicitly accepting that the diaspora is a diseased state, inheriting the tradition of European racial and disability science to do so, and arguing the cure for this diseased state was relocation to Palestine. It denies the vast diversity of the diaspora and creates a white, physically and mentally abled male ideal. We are imposing anti-Semitism and white supremacy on ourselves. And that is, you know, that is exactly parallel with the idea of Pacific West expansionism, these ideas of rescuing men from unhealthy urban living and bringing them to to new quote unquote, virgin land and that they could just fuck off and develop and do whatever. And that mention of redemption of the soil is really interesting, too because that also I feel reinforces this parallel of projecting a white purity onto the purity of the land. They saw themselves as being more fit to take care of the land than Palestinians, the same as white colonizers in Western America. I get, you know, you can, you can cut this out if it's a little too spicy, but I just, I, it makes me so fucking mad because it's so gross that the part of this, this racist kind of eugenics movement that partly created the environment for the fucking Holocaust is something that now Zionism itself uses to, to justify its own existence. It's disgusting. And like Zionists today will say that we need Israel to prevent another Holocaust, but it kind of borrows from that tradition of European racial science in the first place. And it's just it's just so gross how the state of Israel and Zionism it twists itself. It twists history to suit itself. That's all I had to say about it.
2: Yeah, like that's why we did Hitler versus Herzl, because you honestly can't tell the difference between what mm-hmm. Hitler's saying and what Herzl's saying. And that's why we have to push back against this narrative that we need to have Israel because another Holocaust could happen, but
1: absolutely, yeah. I mean there's there's the whole Holocaust that we had pushes back on the idea that the Holocaust is even like unique.
2: Yeah, it's not mm-hmm.
1: it's not unique. You could even say that Israel's conducting a holocaust against Palestinians but like i would say so yeah no i i said you could say meaning yeah. that like
2: <laughs> i know a lot of people are iffy about saying it but come on like well, I especially mean, like, after doing like researching for this episode it's like there's
1: yeah yeah no i mean like you could say meaning like the the dumb arg- argumentation about like even their the the like zionist definitions about like what a holocaust is what you have to be doing to do it and all of that bullshit like you could even say within that framework probably
0: mm-hmm. but like mm.
1: they're could they're conducting like a, a genocide but yeah. like y- even getting back to the idea of what zevin i have been kind of going on about like re- going into a a uh, either untouched or improperly touched Land and developing it, like there's there's that whole weird, fucking make the desert bloom shit.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna um, be talking that, about that that
1: Israelis talk about. Like, what yeah. the fuck?
2: I'll, I'll be so, getting into that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> know you. Don't
2: thunder. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but just like as a little teaser, like God, fucking damn it! They know they they do this shit. They they use environmental eugenics and they use actual eugenics to talk about why Palestinians don't deserve land and why they don't deserve to not be bombed and all of this shit and just fuck them. God damn it.
2: Yeah. Fuck Zionism. <laughs> it's the worst. Uh, Lydia, now you get to talk. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> I'm really excited about
0: this.
2: Yay. I think we'll all be learning a lot. Let's get to it. Awesome, awesome. I'm
3: excited too. <laughs> okay, cool. So I will be talking about the development of Jewish environmental ethics. And this set of ethics originated within the rabbinic Midrashic tradition, circa 70 CE to 700 CE. Developed in Tanaitic, Amoraic, and post amoraic texts, These ethics are based mostly in Jewish law surrounding proper ways to treat animals, practice the Sabbath, and limit human-caused destruction. A focal point is the concept of balance between nature and human. Humans do not hold free, unrestricted reign over earth, and nature does not hold complete priority over the needs of people. Tangentially, neither party can determine the fate of the other. Rabbinic ethics is where the bulk of the development happened. Avoiding animal abuse, the concept of the Sabbath, and no excessive destruction are not all of the environmental ethics within rabbinic thought, but they are arguably the most applicable to the present day. The ethic of avoiding animal abuse is first developed in the Babylonian Talmud, a post amoric text, specifically in Sanhedrin 56b-57a. to The Noahide mitzvah that prohibits eating the flesh of living animals is cited as the foundational, foundational argument. This mitzvah is first in Genesis, Rabbah 34, 8, which is an Amoraic text. The rabbis argue to expand this mitzvah to include no consuming the blood of living animals, no crossbreeding, and no castrating the animals. Genesis six twenty and 9, verse 4 and 7 are the proof texts for this expansion. Genesis chapter 6 describes God's anger at the state of the world and orders a flood which, enter Noah, results in the ark. Verse 620 is God ordering Noah to bring animals onto the ark, namely, quote, From birds of every kind, cattle of every kind, every kind of creeping thing on earth, two of each shall come to Noah's ark to stay alive, end quote. Note that creeping thing, aka insects, are very much so included within this animal rights discourse. The rabbis use this specific verse to prove that crossbreeding is prohibited and should be a part of the ethic due to specifically the separate groups of two. Genesis chapter 9 verse 4 orders that people, quote, must not eat flesh with its lifeblood in it, end quote, which is quite a sound argument for including no consuming living animal blood within this ethic. Genesis chapter 9, in general, is God laying down the law for Noah and his sons on how to repopulate and treat earth post-flood, so the verse's context checks out as well. As for Genesis chapter 9 verse 7, God commands Noah to, quote, be fertile, then, and increase, abound on the earth, and increase on it, End quote. In case the drift was not caught, <laughs> God is saying for Noah and his sons to plentifully fill the earth with people. Even though God is clearly referencing humans, the rabbis equate the sacredness of reproduction across all species here, aka the added ethic of no castrating of animals. Human-animal ethics, leading up to and within the Babylonian Talmud, Exert a benevolent force of, at the very least, respect towards non-humanoid species. These ethics are one of the keystones of environmental ethics. In this rabbinic development of ensuring respect of sentient beings, a.k.a. not consuming blood of living animals, not playing God with biodiversity, a.k.a. no crossbreeding, and honoring the continuation of all life on Earth, no castration represents an ancient, long-standing Jewish tradition and psyche of understanding and accepting that humans are not superior to other animals. Humans still use animals for their respective wills, so the scales of human versus the environment balance seem to still weigh in humanity's favor.
2: I have a question. Go ahead. (laughs) Does that mean Jews aren't supposed to like spay and neuter their pets? Um, Technically, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs)
3: I I never thought about it, I guess in that yeah, yeah, that wouldn't yeah.
2: So we're Hmm. not supposed to trap neuter release cats?
3: Well, I guess usually the ethic applies to like work animals. So technically you could one could argue (laughs) that
2: cats and dogs aren't for like a working purpose. Oh, okay. It's just for work animals. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I understand. That makes sense. Yes. <laughs> Gotta treat your workers well. Yes. <laughs> Don't castrate your workers.
3: <laughs> the tradition of the Sabbath originates in the mission of Shabbat five, a Tanaitic text. The proof text is Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, one of the 10 commandments. Quote, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements, end quote. The Mishnah Shabbat interprets cattle as all animals within human control, and it lays out many rules regarding what the animal may leave the house or farm with or without, specific to each animal type, along with specifications on how to best ensure that the animal will not be hurt whatsoever. Even though the Torah only references cattle rest, the rabbinic tradition started off right away with including all animal rest and animal well-being. The Babylonian Talmud expands on this concept in Shabbat 5. Here, all the ins and outs of how to properly harness the animals, the rings on an animal, and virtually every circumstance regarding animal rest on the Sabbath are included. In another section within the Mishnah Shabbat, Section 7, the natural world is also offered relief and rejuvenation ideology. Thirty-nine specific jobs are listed as prohibited on the Sabbath. A few most related to the concept of environmental ethics, is no farming work, no preparation of raw materials into edible food or usable clothing material, no making of textiles, no kindling or extinguishing of fire, no action relating to creating a machine or product of some sort, and no transportation of items from one place to another. Considering all these jobs contribute in some way to the destruction of ecosystems, of air and water, and more unknowingly or knowingly, the rabbinic tradition of the Sabbath directly benefits the health of the natural world as well as the health of humans. The Sabbath laws also contribute to the concept of balance, for, regardless of all the positives, it is only one day of the seven day week. Again, the idea of balance still leans more towards humans. Now, the law of baltashit, Tashit, one of the most prominent Jewish ethics, prohibits excessive destruction. This reduces harmful behavior harmful human behavior at all times, not just on the Sabbath. First appearing in Sefer Deuteronomy 203 204, a Tanaitic text written in the 3rd century CE, it is developed via commentary in the Sefer Kedoshim 11 6 7 and further evolved in the Kama 91b 92a, which is mainly in the Babylonian Talmud. The proof text cited in all three is Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19 through 20. For context, Deuteronomy chapter 20 is God issuing guidance for warfare against different groups. Quote, When in your war against a city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it. You must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? Only trees that you know do not yield food may be destroyed. You may cut them down for constructing siege birds against the city that is waging war on you until it has been reduced, end quote. Sefer Deuteronomy 203-204 clarifies that during warfare siege, destroying trees by other means than via an axe, such as denying the tree water, is also prohibited. Rabbi Ishmael specifically claims that destruction of fruit is prohibited as well. Since destroying the tree is wrongful, that makes destroying the life-giving fruit even more wrong. The authors also say that the word only indicates fruit trees are not to be destroyed for the siege, which points to a hierarchical importance. Non-fruit trees are used for warfare first, and fruit trees only used if non-fruit trees run out. This is a little confusing, so stay with me. (laughs) The direct reference to fruit trees sustaining human life is covered as well and agreed with. A dichotomy between a positive commandment and a negative commandment is distinctly laid out. Eating from the fruit tree is positive and cutting it down is negative. In general, this text prohibits excessive destruction in times of warfare. Since warfare is an extremely horrible state to reside in, it seems safe to conclude that destroying fruit trees at any point is considered destruction and therefore unlawful. With the Sifra Kedoshim. The fruit tree dilemma is used for further defining the righteous versus the wicked in terms of God favor in a general non-warfare setting. The righteous are the spared fruit trees and the wicked are the cut down non-fruit trees. To reiterate, the wicked are the cut down non-fruit trees, meaning that God does not provide protection or care to non-fruit trees. The righteous versus wicked theme stems from the Sefer Deuteronomy's distinction of the positive commandment, a fruit tree, versus the negative commandment, cutting down a fruit tree. Now, a person not destroying a fruit tree is deemed righteous by God and will be protected. The Bhavakama 91b-92a takes a direct but shakily based turn for economics. It claims that if a non-fruit tree has a higher worth than a fruit tree, then one is allowed to cut down the fruit tree based on the world only in the fr- proof text. Note earlier in the Sefer Deuteronomy, this word was used to prove the hierarchy of fruit trees over non-fruit trees. The Bhavakamo uses this word to say that fruit trees can be cut down for better economic gain. As you can see, this claim does not really align with the earlier ethic development. Now, the ethic against excessive destruction is much more elusive in terms of human relation to the environment. Referencing back to the idea of balance, the unlawful excessive destruction's origin in the Torah is already quite biased for humans. Instead of banning the use of all trees or the natural world for human warfare, God explicitly allows all non-fruit trees to be turned into siege tools. This shows that excessive destruction relating to the natural world it's really only applicable to the parts of the natural world that directly benefit and or contribute to human life. One can easily argue, however, that the majority of the natural world does benefit human life, so it all deserves protection. Nevertheless, the development of this ethic leads to validating the exploitation of the natural world for economic gain, but a super vital piece of this development is the fact that righteous people, people who get into heaven and are on God's good side, are those who protect the fruit tree. In addition, none of the developments so far validate excessive exploitation or destruction, which contributes to reorienting the balance between human and nature back a little bit towards nature. Now for medieval Judaism, from around 700 CE to 1700 CE, medieval Jewish ethics evolves directly from rabbinic Judaism and adds its own spiritual flair. Led in large part by Maimonides from Spain, Rabbis from the 11th to around the 16th century CE expanded upon the concept of tashit to include prohibiting excessive destruction in all areas of life. Food, infrastructure, personal belongings, water, energy, money, etc. As a tangent from water, Rabbi Yerasham from Spain, directly influenced by Maimonides, deemed that it is especially unlawful to waste water when others are in need. This specific development out of Maimonides' thought applies directly to the modern day. The middle-aged rabbis developed the law against excessive destruction to be even more applicable to life and raised the importance and sensitivity to follow this law. Though not mentioned in the rabbinic section for the sake of scope, Maimonides also expanded kosher laws to be even more considerate of animal welfare. From these two developments, the skills of balance of human, versus nature are tipped slightly back towards the natural world's favor. Kabbalah, the strong current of Jewish spirituality and mysticism that grew during the Middle Ages, further established the holiday to Bishvat. Though established and defined in rabbinic tradition, Kabbalistic rabbis created a festival to signify a New Year Day and as a measurement to determine when trees reach harvesting age. Kabbalah ideologies heavily influenced the specific rituals of this holiday. Fruits and trees from Palestine were given spiritual meaning, and they were eaten in certain order and accompanied by prayer in an effort to bring both humans and earth further along the spiritual journey and closer to God. By holidifying and ritualizing this day for the natural world, environmental ethics comes even more centered stage within Jewish life. Again, balance starts to lean more towards the natural world. The Middle Ages, in general, were a flourishing time for human environment ethics, which can be contributed in part to the rise of spirituality and the resultant feeling of oneness with the world and compassion for the other. Within the time period of 1700 CE to 1917 CE, Hasidism and Zionism both dabbled in environmental ethics. Hasidism was heavily influenced by the Kabbalistic tradition and furthered environmental ethics through the avenue of spirituality. Israel Baal Shem Tov, or Besht, Besht their founder, emphasized the lowliness of humans, and to not assume the self-reigns superior over anything else. There is lovely discourse between many Hasidic rabbis regarding the extent and breadth of what this teaching applies to. It seems, in relation to the environment, it is safe to say that the Hasidic tradition expands even the spiritual humility of the Kabbalah. Fesh emphasizes pantheism, in that a sliver of God's divinity is in all living things. From this, humans are no better than the next sentient being with with this same sliver of God. With placing people on the same metaphysical level as even a plant, Hasidism forces the decentering of humanity within the world outlook. In essence, this tradition again shifts the balance between human and nature, towards nature, bit by bit. It seems that the natural progression of Jewish environmental ethics is to, is to promote more stewardship and respect of the natural world. On the complete opposite end, (laughs) Zionism was developed initially in the elite classes of European society. In its youth, due to its creation by the European intelligentsia, the environmental side of Zionism was based on an idealistic view of technology, being able to turn Palestine into a haven on earth instead of a desert. This ideology leaned the skills of balance heavily towards Jewish people, for it situated them as needing to, quote-unquote, save the so-called barren landscape of Palestine, through technological dominance and harmful manipulation of the land. Due to the large capitalistic European influence within the higher echelons of Jewish society and their founder not being a rabbi or a scholar of Judaism, it makes sense that Zionism largely deviates from continuing the ancient rabbinic tradition and that it forges a new Europeanized capitalistic path of human environment relations, or more precisely, human dominance over the environment. It goes without saying why ethics development was placed on an extreme hold from 1918 until, at the very least, 1945. Starting around 1960, scientists started ringing the the alarm bells about the devastating impact of the Industrial Revolution on the environment. The interesting reactions within the world, world of environmental Judaism are situated both in the Zionist and the rabbinic light. Israel's environmental behavior stems directly from Zionism, so it is entirely technological-based. Israel made made progress in water use, reverting desertification, bringing species back from the brink of extinction, etc. However, water and air pollution are currently still rampant, and the environmental infrastructure is reaching worrying levels of decay, just as the rest of the world. A solely technological approach to anything is never the most sustainable, nor the best way to go about something. As one example, by leaving out the religious, spiritual, ancient rabbinic tradition, aka a source of humanity in defiance to Christian European capitalism, Zionism bred yet another capitalistic, federal colonial state that is completely focused on economic gain and militant prestige. U.S. Jewish environmentalism is also heavily influenced by Zionism. however. The Zionist origins were more so a means to an end for U.S. Jewish activists to unite their rather radical values with that of the more traditional Jewish community. Essentially, Zionist ideology created that necessary open dialogue. From this, in classic U.S. fashion, they took it and ran with it. Vegetarianism was pushed. Rabbi Ellen Bernstein had published multiple groundbreaking novels regarding how to better connect to Earth in order to better understand one's faith. And numerous Jewish environmental organizations pioneered the larger U.S. environmental movement, all the while generally keeping with the rabbinic tradition. To conclude, Jewish environmental ethics of respecting biodiversity, sacralizing rest and reflection, and seizing all excessive destruction of ourselves and the natural world can contribute wonderfully to mitigating the climate crisis. The concept of balance between human and nature is central, with this balance beginning quite geared towards humans and ending geared little by little more towards nature, with the exception of Zionism. With the dominant Western Christian-enabled capitalism, imperialism, mass exploitation, and mass destruction, the future looks quite bleak. However, there is abundant hope with everything non-Western Christian Christian related. Our chances can be greatly improved if these harmful Western Christian socioeconomic structures and ethics are completely broken down and rebuilt up with the decentering of the human, which is a process already begun by Jewish environmental ethics. And that concludes that.
2: That's great. Yeah. So Zionism also tried to create its own single culture and language. Like modern Hebrew wasn't really a language, it's always been biblical Hebrew. Modern Hebrew was made by Zionists to try and justify why. They need their own land, because if you think of Stalin's points for national question, and oh how am I going to say this? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm having brain drain right now
1: in Stalin's national question, he discusses
2: <laughs> he discusses, like four main points on why a group of people, can be classified as a nation. And one of those things is a common language. Jews diaspora Jews did not have a common language. They had Yiddish, they had Ladino. The Mizrahi Jews had uh, I think Arabic. Correct me if I'm missing any other languages.
1: Some had Chinese, some had yeah. Indian, like, yeah, and i'm I'm even getting those wrong because there's no such thing as Chinese and Indian. There's like, a million languages. In yeah. So like- yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's why I get a little pissed off when people like try to say that Hebrew is a common language among Jews because it isn't. It never was um, only in the Torah. So Zionists were essentially asking to take over the occupation of Palestine from the Turks and Than the British, and presenting Zionism as a new European occupier. Uh, As our boy Theodore Herzl put it, a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. They intended to displace the population instead of coexist with the Palestinians there. They wanted to create a pure racial space devoid of any other population other than themselves. Sounds a lot pretty familiar to Nazi Germany uh, and the Aryan race. Like the reactionary nationalism taking over Europe at the time, Zionism was also looking for their quote-unquote authentic ancient roots. A leading uh, Eastern European Jewish essayist who visited Palestine in 1891 said to other Jews in Europe, we abroad are used to believing that Eretz Yisrael is now almost totally desolate, a desert that is not sowed. But in truth, that is not the case. Throughout the country, it is difficult to find fields that are not planted. So, part of the whole Zionist propaganda campaign was to have Jews come over to develop the land, even though it's fucking developed. And part of the arguments used for land development, as mentioned before, was making the desert bloom. And I have this thesis in my mind that I've been working on that making the desert bloom is like the Zionist version of blood and soil. It completely erases any Palestinian contribution to the land. It completely erases the entire history of that land to justify this genocidal campaign you can see that with like the Jewish National Fund campaign for trees. So like ever since what, like the 50s, uh, lots of Jewish families would have these little Zedek boxes for the Jewish National Fund and you put money in it and they would go buy trees to be planted in Israel. But they don't talk about what, like, why are those trees being planted? Because they're uprooting the olive trees of the Palestinians. And I'll get into that a little more later. So also there were a lot of nomadic tribes in Palestine. And again, Zionism completely erases them and then says that Israel is a people without a land for a land without a people, which is utterly false. Again, completely erasing the indigenous population that was in Palestine at the time and still are. Uh, They had to present the land as an empty desert whose settlement wouldn't affect anyone. So as a way of just basically lying to Jews saying, yeah, you can come here. Nobody's here. But really, there's a shit ton of people who are living here and don't really want you to be there. Sinus also only gave land to Jews only and requested that they, quote unquote, tame the frontier, which also ties into the whole American Western expansion campaign that we learned about earlier in the episode. They also presented it as barren because the native population, quote unquote, neglected it. Again, we uh, Zev talked about this and Prez talked about this as well. So they tried to present it as like a, a huge Jewish return to the Holy Land. It's biblical. Like this is in our history when if you all listen to that fucking five hour episode we did on the Exodus, you know, that's not right. <laughs> That is not factually correct, but that's the propaganda that they push out. They've also ceased calling them Palestinians and calling them Arabs instead. So they remove that land, that land title from the people. It's just another way to completely erase their history and essentially a cultural genocide as well. So what is Israel used? for by the U.S. Uh, It's an outpost for those in the Middle East and to make sure that the U.S. still has access to oil all around it. I think that's the main reason why the U.S. props up Israel so much. I'm going to talk a little bit about what capital has Israel accumulated by removing the Palestinians. The Palestinian farmlands and homes are routinely routinely confiscated and demolished to make room for Israeli-only settlements. So you're basically taking away their arable land, their homes, their water. And the western hills of the West Bank contains one of the major aquifers in the region. Part of the reason why Israel was able to reverse desertification, as Lydia mentioned earlier, is because Israel consumes 89% of West Bank's water, while Palestinians only get 11% of their natural water resources. Per capita, water consumption in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip is 60 liters per day, while in Israel it's about 280 liters per day. And the travel restrictions also affect Palestinians' access to fresh water. A number of the settlements were deliberately constructed over key water resources, which is then confiscated by Israel by the annexation wall. So, yeah, really cool shit that Israel is doing uh, to the Palestinians. So, what else has Palestine lost? they have been primarily been an agricultural village and city people sustaining and improving the millennia old dry climate agriculture native to the land as well as nurturing the orchards of ancient olive trees some of them thousands of years old so that whole section about destroying fruit trees in Deuteronomy 20 19 20 as Lydia quoted it's really angered me <laughs> The fact that Zionism tries to push itself out like this is a this is a great Jewish tradition and they just destroy all these olive trees. If you listen to our Palestinian episode, you know that the olive trees in Palestinian families are like a like a sibling. They grow up with them, they treat them as like one of their own. And then to have it destroyed is like a family tragedy. And then these fucking israelis just come in and tear them up. And I think that's just another form of like direct fascism against the palestinians. I'm I'm like working through this whole paper in my head that I think I'm going to write about. Like how yeah, just the destruction of these olive trees is like a direct destruction of palestinians. And I think that Deuteronomy quote really really sums it up. Palestine was also renowned for its olive oil industry and mainly the Jaffa orange. So, this, this when I read this, I was super pissed about it because I didn't know about it. Uh, another way that Israel has subverted capital from the Palestinians is in the 40s and 50s, Israel created the concept of the kibbutz. So. When you do birthright, you're told that the kibbutz is like this great commune where you get to hang out, you all work together, you all eat together. But the concept of the kibbutz was created as, as a way to undermine Palestinian labor and to basically eliminate wage labor in the Zionist state. And I want to read more about that because I didn't know that so when people say oh the kibbutz is like a socialist dream no it fucking isn't it was created specifically to fuck palestinians over so i talked about jewish national fund a little earlier before 1943 they took a survey of every single palestinian land including the trees and every field and used this information to destroy those living in palestine they would take these maps and go out and destroy everything to take it over for the Zionists. What's crazy is that Palestinians are 38% of Jerusalem's population, and they only have access to 7% of the land. The similarities to Nazi Germany are just like, insane to me. And the more and more I read about Israel and Palestine, the more and more I agree that this is just, another Holocaust or another, it is a genocide. Lax environmental standards have made the West Bank and Gaza the most polluted areas. They have basically become a dumping ground for Israeli industrial waste and their economy is tightly controlled by Israel. So that's all really doom and gloom. So how are the Palestinians resisting all of this they replant torn-up olive trees. I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, but there are organizations that, if you donate money to, they will replant olive trees uh, in Palestine. They fight the IDF. I think the Great March of Return was a couple of days ago, the anniversary of that. It's just like they also fight settlers that are trying to move in on their land. They do everyday resistance. There are groups of Palestinian women that will go out and eat at a park. They continue to live in their homes that have been demolished. They will not not be moved from where they have lived. We also have the boycott divestment sanctions we can take part of too, so that's one way of resisting. And just carrying on life and surviving and continuing to have children to continue the Palestinian lineage and not to be, giving birth is one way of resisting the eugenics that israel i i didn't really get into the eugenics that israel has been committing against the palestinians but that is one way it's just by continuing to live and survive and celebrating their culture and against all odds i feel like that was really short <laughs> i'm really sorry i think i'm done do you have anything you want to plug lydia
3: Yes, for the Center for Chimney and Studies, we have our fourth general issue coming out, hopefully within a month or so.
2: Yeah, and then we have the volume one of the 16 volumes of the Collected Works of Stalin. <laughs> I think we're done. Have a <sighs> wonderful day. Enjoy the spring. Yes, I, I think the pandemic is almost
0: six done. hours, <laughs> get vaccinated.
2: Yeah, let's get vaccinated so we can yes. start going to shows again. Whoop,
0: whoop. I, have, I am
1: vaccinated.
2: Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to get it. Probably June or July. All right. Get vaccinated. Unless you already are. Don't double up on those unless you're supposed to. Uh and see you next time